There are a lot of things in politics and policy which are just really difficult problems that are hard to fix. This is not one of them. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. Um, really amazing episode today because there's a lot going on in politics. We're a week out from the elections, um, the, the, the first round of elections um, in California and across the country. Super Tuesday's coming up. There's just a lot going on in politics. So we're going to try and get to some of the most important parts of that. Um, I do want to start with a big story, which again, and it keeps being the big story because it is such a big problem, the border. It's in the news the whole time because just the, 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 the stories about what's going on just get worse and worse. I mean, we've just seen this appalling crime, the murder of a medical student in Georgia. Dribs and drabs of information came out. And first, you know, we were told the suspect is not a citizen. And then it turns out Venezuelan. And then it turns out not just a Venezuelan, but someone who's arrested previously in New York and then released. And just the whole thing is so infuriating. Because yet again, a senseless death of an American at the hands of someone who is a criminal who should never have been here in the first place, should never have been here, and an American has died as a result. And this is the direct result of policy choices made by this administration. And it just reminds us, going right back to the case of Kate Steinle, remember that? 2015, murdered in San Francisco. Very similar situation. And that led, of course, to the focus on illegal immigration in the run-up to the 2016 election that led to Donald Trump making that an issue and all the establishment, all the people said, why are you talking about the border and immigration? No one cares about that. And of course, it was the signature issue that propelled Donald Trump to the White House. And then once in office, he did his best, despite all the um, efforts of both, the, fr frankly, the Republican-controlled Congress, disgracefully, to stop him from doing what he promised to do, the system as a whole. But despite that, he did his best and clamped down. And, you know, as I, I always say, the border wasn't perfect under Donald Trump, but it was moving towards the kind of control that we want to see, a secure border where people are vetted and they just sort of walk across. And, and, and the tragedy of where we are now is all of that was reversed almost overnight by Joe Biden and his administration. And so you have this chaotic and dangerous situation right now. It's as if the Trump years never happened. We're right back to where we were in 2015. The story of Kate Steinle almost replicated exactly in this story last week of this murder at the hands of someone who shouldn't have been here in the first place, an illegal immigrant who's a criminal. And so it's so infuriating because it is it is preventable. You know, there are a lot of things in politics and policy which are just really difficult problems that are hard to fix. This is not one of them. It is not complicated to have a secure border. You just need to have the will to do it. And what you've, we've seen from this administration, this Biden administration of the past three years, that they don't, not just that they don't have the will to do it. This is the important point to remember about this whole border disaster is it's not incompetence or, you know, an accident, a policy accident where circumstances have made it very difficult. No, this is a choice. It is a policy choice. The open border and all the terrible consequences, the death and destruction and disruption in communities across the country that has come from millions and millions of illegal immigrants crossing totally unvetted into our country. That is the choice 
of the Democratic Party who've been captured by a far-left ideology that believes not just that open borders are good, but that any kind of control of the border is tantamount to racism. That is what they think. And Biden, because he's just a totally weak machine politician who just goes with the flow, just went along with this from day one and opened the border. And here we are and we see the consequences. And finally, now, they're claiming to want to do something about it. And so that brings us up to date to this week, where this week, amazingly, Biden is going to the border on the same day as Donald Trump, which is a, just a hilarious coincidence. The last time he went, do you remember they had all that lying and obfuscation about whether he'd been or not? And, oh, he has been to the border and the press were challenging him. And he said, well, he has been. And then it turns out he was driving hundreds of miles from the border. And in fact, it wasn't even Joe Biden. It was Jill Biden. So then they finally got him to the border and it wasn't really anywhere near the border. And they had some place that was cleaned up and no evidence of the chaos and catastrophe that his policies have created. And now he's going back to the border because it's yet again a political problem, because they really care about the issue, because they're worried it will affect them in the election. And of course, it looks like it will, because the other news we've had this week is just the polling on this border crisis, Biden's border crisis, which is exactly the right name for it, um, shows that it's just now the number one issue. A Gallup poll, it's just massive increase in the numbers of people saying that the border is their top concern. It is now the top concern in the electorate. Another poll this week showed that there is now a majority of Americans in favor of building the wall, which led to the most astonishing headline I saw from an MSNBC host. I just heard this on MSNBC. Build the wall. The mantra that helped Trump win the White House is taking hold across America. We've got the new polling with big implications for November. It's just clear that the country wants action. And what you've got in the Biden administration is a bunch of people who, who for, for the longest time, they pretended this wasn't even a problem. This is not even new. This has been going on for years. People like Bill Malugin from Fox and others have been at the border reporting on this for year after year after year. And all that time, they just blew it off and say it's not, it's not a crisis gaslighting us, saying the border is secure, the border is secure. All of them, Mallorcas and Kamala Harris and Biden and Karine Jean-Pierre and before her, Jen Psaki, all lying and saying the border is secure. Well, you literally had the, vid the, the video of people wandering across the border, zero vetting, zero control, nothing. And they're claiming the border is secure. Now, finally, they're pretending to do something about it. But even as they pretend to do something about it, they're lying again. Lie number one, that this is now their real concern. And they, they go around and say, oh, yes, we're very seriously concerned. It's a very serious situation. It's a, it's a, it is a crisis and we really care about it. That is total bullshit, frankly. Um, the only reason that they're talking in Congress about the border the only reason that they're, they're, they came to the negotiating table to try and do something about the border is because Republicans in Congress who had their own border bill for years that the Democrats didn't want to touch, didn't go, want to go anywhere near any measures to deal with the border. Um, the only reason they're in the room negotiating now and were in the, over the last few months is because the Republicans connected it to the Ukraine issue. That's the only reason because they wanted money for Ukraine. The Republicans knew that and said, right, 
we're going to connect these two issues. Only then did the Democrats start talking about the border, which tells you what their real priorities are. But actually, the second big lie in all of this is that they even need a legislative process to do something about the border. It is simply not true. And the evidence of that is what we see, because all this chaos and catastrophe and death and destruction and disruption that's been caused by their open border policy, all of that was done as a result of actions taken by the administration to undo what Trump did. There's not, there's not been any open borders legislation. They didn't do any of this through the Congress. They did it entirely on their own through administrative action. So their simple question remains, Joe Biden and your team of hard left activists running this open borders agenda, if you were able to open the border without legislation from Congress, why can't you secure the border in the same way? And that is the question they simply cannot answer, regardless of what they say, what they do, how many ridiculous photo ops, they can't answer that simple question because they don't want to, because in the end, they don't really want to secure the border. They just want to save their skins for the election in November. So let's talk about um, a policy issue that just infuriates me every time uh, it comes up. And that's the whole point. It comes up often. And we're seeing it again. So with all this border stuff that's going on in Ukraine and whatever, the other thing that they're going on about now is a government shutdown. Here we go again, a government shutdown. So, so today, I'm taping this on Tuesday, you had a meeting in the White House, Biden, Kamala Harris, from the Senate side, you had Chuck Schumer and um, Mitch McConnell. And on the House side, you had Mike Johnson, the Speaker, and Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat leader in the, in the House. And there they were, and they were trying to sort of figure out all these issues, and you've got Ukraine and the border and all the rest of it. But in the middle of it all, government shutdown. And yet again, we have the media and all the, all the you know, the political, you know, circuit uh, being revved up around a government shutdown. If we don't do a deal, then they have a partial shutdown starting this day, and then it's a full shutdown, whatever. It's so ridiculous. It is so infuriatingly ridiculous. I'm sorry to be so angry today, but it's just, I mean, what are we to make of this? That that these absolute idiots, frankly, well, not idiots, I shouldn't call them idiots. They're people who behave idiotically. Let's, let's use that term. It's less personally insulting, but it's an accurate description of what's been going on in this policy. Like, these are people, they're supposed to be serious people. And yet we have this endless cycle of, of threatened government shutdowns. I mean, it is a complete joke. Any organization that ran itself this way would would just fail and so here we are we have the greatest country in in the world with perhaps the most dysfunctional government which is just amazing to me and and it comes back to the, the 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 policy argument i want to make about this and i'm just not interested in talking about the specifics of you know what what, what are they doing here with the all the different terminology and the kind of Capitol Hill BS that goes into all this and continuing resolution and this and that and different ways of funding, whatever, and the accounting tricks that they use. It's all beside the point because what it all reveals is the real point, the real policy point, which is that they have far too much to do. They've given themselves, and they're not given, they've taken far too much power away from the states, away from local communities, contrary to the Constitution. I say all the time because it's so important the 10th Amendment. The, the, to me, the, the, the amendment that is most important and overlooked, the, the, the most significant combination there, incredibly important, 
almost igno totally ignored. The Tenth Amendment, which says very clearly that the powers not specified in the Constitution are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And so you have huge, th these enormous budgets that they're negotiating. There's no way that these people can do a good job. I mean, just the size of this massive federal government and all the different departments and the funding that they do and all these different issues, there's no way that anyone can get a proper grip of that. That's why it's so dysfunctional. They just can't. They don't know what they're doing because it's almost impossible for anyone to manage this budget. It's just metastasized over the years. And you have all these things that are completely according to the Constitution, the responsibility of the states. You look at education, you look at health and welfare spending and housing. I mean, endless, massive government expenditures. So when they're talking about a shutdown, it's because of the budget, right? They can't agree the budget. But the budget itself is just, you know, it's not about like a 1% cut or you're limiting the increase to 0.5% or whatever it is over the next few years. And that's the kind of, that tends to be the parameters that they're negotiating in. You know, like how much does it grow over the next few years? And can we, and Republicans saying, let's keep the increase down. And, and of course they have the different categories and you have the entitlement expenditure. I know people don't like using the term entitlement for things like social security because you've worked all your life. I get it. You know, but the, 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 the automatic spending increases that are baked in. Um, and then you have on top of that defense. So you end, you end up with this massive amount of spending. So if you take a hundred percent of the entire federal budget, and then you say, well, we can't touch that and we can't touch that and we can't touch that. So it ends up being like, I don't know, a tiny sliver of it. If you think about a pie chart, a tiny sliver that they that they actually can affect what they call discretionary spending, non-defense discretionary spending. So they're haggling over, I don't know, 17 percent, something like that of the actual budget that they can influence. So already you're in a total mess and it's these ridiculous, you know, tiny little fiddles with the budget that don't affect the fundamental policy point, which is that the federal government is massively too big and massively too engaged in all sorts of policy areas where it should have no business. And I just honestly don't know what we can do about that unless we elect people to the Congress, serious people to the Congress in large enough numbers who, who are really committed to the Constitution and the 10th Amendment. But I, because what tends to happen is that these people run for office and it's, you know, and they say, oh, we've got to reign in the federal government and they constitution and power to the states, and whatever. And the minute that they get there, they love the power that comes with spending all this money and the influence that gives them and the wooing that that means that they get from all the special interests and the lobbyists who want all that federal spending, whether that's the military industrial complex or subsidies for big agriculture or whatever. So these members of Congress, you, you know, I'm, I don't question their motives when they say these things before they're elected. We've got to, you know, reign in Washington or whatever. The minute that they get there, they behave the exact opposite way. And I think that is true of Democrats and Republicans um, alike. I don't see any sign that there's anyone there. I really mean it, anyone. I mean, maybe, I mean, the, the one person that comes to mind, Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, does talk at least about the 10th Amendment. I don't know what he's done about it. I think Rand Paul as well. You can see the more libertarian ones. But what are they actually doing about it? Where, where are the moves um, to, to you know, shut down these massive and unjustified parts of the federal government and, and return, as the Constitution states, those powers and the funding that goes with them to the states or to the people? 
no one's really doing that. So I don't, I don't want to be depressed you, but I can't see any real solution to this. They're going to keep doing this ridiculous merry-go-round of, of threatened shutdowns and, and footling negotiations over tiny pieces of the budget, but no real reform. The real reform we need is to massively reduce the federal government. And in order to do that, you need to send people to Washington who truly believe in the spirit and the letter of the 10th Amendment. All right, for California Corner today, we're joined by our friend Susan Shelley. Perfect timing, Susan. We're talking a week before the elections. We're taping this on Tuesday. Um, next Tuesday, March the 5th, is Election Day. Of course, there's no such thing anymore as Election Day. Uh, we have Election Month and then a the month afterwards. I mean, we're going to get into all of that. So there's some really important things everyone needs to understand about the election system, about the process, some of the things that are on the ballot. We can't cover it all, but you're here to help us understand the most important things. Where should we start? Well, if you're a registered voter in California, you should already have received a ballot in the mail. If you didn't receive a ballot in the mail, you can probably still get one. Just contact your county registrar and ask for one. Or you can just go to a vote center. They're opening early all over the place in every county, and you can vote in person. You don't have to vote by mail. Even though they sent you a mail ballot, you don't have to vote by mail. So that's the main thing. And if you want to vote in either of the presidential primaries and you're a no-party preference voter, you need a crossover ballot. But not all the parties allow crossover voting. If you want to vote in the Republican primary, you have to register as a Republican, and you can change your registration to Republican. And if you want to, you can change it back again to no-party preference. But if you want to vote in the Republican primary, you have to change your registration. If you want to vote in the Democratic primary, just ask for a crossover ballot. But otherwise, no-party preference voters will get no-party primary for the presidency on their ballot. I don't recall. So and no party preference, that's an official registration or just the absence of Democrat or Republican? That's an official registration. You can register as no party preference. They don't call it independent. There's another party that was founded many years ago by a segregationist, which is called the American Independent Party. That's not the same as being an independent voter. So if people, people get confused. But if you want to register with no party preference, you can. And that's literally NPP. You're registered NPP. So just to be clear, if when I got my ballot in the mail, as you described, and it has the Republican presidential primary candidates listed, if I had registered at that moment when I got my citizenship as NPP, does that mean I would have received a different ballot in the mail and it would not have had the, re the Republican primary candidates on there? That's correct. You would have received every other race all the way down the ballot is under our top two primary system, or it's a mm -hmm. nonpartisan race. So everything else is the same. All the candidates are on the same ballot, and the voters nominate the candidates for the general election. The top two in every race go to the general election. But the presidential primary is mm -hmm. still a party primary. And so if you're registered NPP, there will be no presidential candidates on your ballot. And just to be clear, that the requirement that the NPP voters register as Republicans, is that a requirement put in place by the Republican Party? Exactly. The parties so, determine their own rules on who can vote in their primaries. So this is not the system trying to, I don't know, exclude or minimize the Republican vote. This exactly. is the party itself saying we only want people voting in our primary who are registered Republicans. Right. The idea is to prevent mischief from people who want to tamper in, in a party primary. Let's talk about some of these some of these new systems. I mean, it's just unbelievable how they keep messing around with the system. What are the latest changes 
and processes that people need to keep an eye on? Well, there have been a lot of changes, and some of them were put in as emergency measures during the COVID pandemic, and then they were quietly authorized permanently by the legislature and signed into law, and now we have them. So one of those is universal mail balloting. Mm-hmm. Previously, we had uh, automatic registration at the Department of Motor Vehicles, and it when it first when it first started, it was an opt-in. They would ask you if you wanted to register, but now it's an opt-out. Now they register you automatically at and the some, DMV when you get DMV, your driver's license. Any you, you go into do any any business at all at the DMV, like renew your driver's license, they are re-registering you fresh again. And so many people have had their registrations changed to the wrong party by default. So you have to check that. And you can check your voter registration at voterstatus.sos.ca.gov, voterstatus.sos.ca.gov. You can always look that up. That's the Secretary of State's website. Mm-hmm. But wait, when you do the, let's just take these piece by piece, the DMV opt out system. So the default is they register you or re-register or check that you're registered and make sure that, I mean, once you're registered, how long does that last for actually? That's another question. Do you have to re-register? No, it should be indefinite. You know, until you move, when you move, you're supposed to re-register. I don't think it's automatic that they take you off the rolls. They're very careful not to, not to disenfranchise people. That's the Mm -hmm. idea. But they are supposed to keep these records current and accurate. And it's Mm -hmm. very difficult to do that while you're trying not to accidentally uh, disenfranchise people. So what you wind up with is they've added this universal mail balloting where they mail mm-hmm. a ballot to every registered voter, whether they asked for it or not. It used to be that it was no fault. You could, no excuse rather, you could ask for a mail ballot and you could have it. You could be a permanent vote by mail voter and mm-hmm. always get your ballot by mail, but you had to request that and sign something so people knew you were real. But now we're mailing a ballot to everyone who's on the voter rolls, 5.6 million people just in Los Angeles County, about 22 or 23 million people statewide. That's a lot of ballots floating around. And there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be ballots stacked up on people's mailboxes in apartment buildings and condo buildings, no longer lives here. What happens to those? And even though the signatures are checked, supposedly, it's not terribly strict and it's not necessarily very accurate. And so there's a tremendous vulnerability for election tampering and election mischief because we're mailing out 22 million ballot ballots, uh, which will be counted if they're, yes. if, if they're verified as being the real signature, which is an automated system, as I said. Uh, if they're verified, they will be counted whether they're really from voters or not. Going back to the TMV, if I may, how d- do they check? If you're eligible to vote, I mean, if you're a citizen, because you can get a driver license regardless of citizenship, right? What are the conditions for getting a driver license? The conditions for getting a driver's license are you have to pass the driver's test, but yeah. uh, but legal residence in the United States is not required. Um, and I, I was told when they put this in that that's a separate type of system and that people who are in the country without documentation cannot register to vote. That's not part of that process. I'm not sure that that has actually happened. But there are many people in the country who are from an, another country and are here legally but are not citizens. And they can be inadvertently registered to vote. And they may not be voting because they know it's illegal to vote if you're not a citizen, but they can be on the rolls and a ballot will be mailed out to so that, them. That's exactly right. So I, I, you know, again, speaking from my personal experience, I was here for, wait, I got my citizenship 2021, so nine, eight or nine years as a green card holder. So 
legally here through the proper process, but not entitled to vote. I wasn't a citizen. But obviously I had a driver license that whole period. So they don't check, basically. No, they don't. Everything is on the honor system except the criminal criminal justice records. They do check to see if people who have registered to vote are not eligible because of a felony. Uh, but they do not check residency. So you could put down an address that's not a real address. No one checks. That's the honor system. You could register without being a citizen. You have to sign something that says under penalty of perjury, I, I assert, I attest that I'm a citizen, but nobody checks. It's the honor system. And they could check, but they won't check. So that's a vulnerability. And of course, there's no voter ID. So anyone can walk into a vote center. You know, in politics, everyone can get the list of who is registered to vote and who's a high propensity voter, who shows up in every election, who shows up in the primary, and who doesn't. You can get that list. That's part of politics. And anyone who was a bad actor who wanted to take that list and a crew of people, you could walk into a vote center and say, I am this person and I live at this address. Give me my ballot. And they will. And they have to. And then you can vote that. And it's going to go in the box. Without and you it's showing any kind of... Um... Yeah, they are not allowed to ask you for identification. They, you, cannot be, you cannot be required to show identification. There is no voter ID law in California. So you combine it's, all it's of these things. It's more than that. It's not that there's no voter ID law. You're saying it's actually against the law to ask. I believe so. They, they, cannot, they cannot require you to show an ID. I have been asked for my driver's license when they just want to check the spelling and make sure that I'm, mm -hmm. the, I'm the Susan Shelley that's on the registered form that I'm not Maybe there might be if you have a common name there might be more people in your county with the same name they want to make sure they've got the right one that's all fine but they can't require you to show a driver's license as a condition of voting as they can in other states and then let's there's 36 add, 34 or 36 states that have voter id not this one let's add into the mix the ballot harvesting so that ballot is where anyone can collect up any number of ballots on behalf of other people right. and hand them in Right. So there's no chain of custody. And there are a lot of laws on the books about coercing at the or campaigning in line at the at the polls. You can't do any electioneering within, I think it's 100 feet of a polling place. But when you're doing all mail balloting, you can have all kinds of campaigning and coercion as people are voting. There's no limit. on what It could be your family around the table. It's not a private it's not a private ballot when you're voting by mail and everyone's around you. And you can also have peer pressure when you're in a union and various other things. So you you lose that protection of the true secret ballot with no electioneering or pressure near the polling place when you do all mail balloting and ballot harvesting the same thing. Someone can come to your door and say, hi, I'm from the union and I'm here to pick up your ballot. We're all voting together. Is your ballot ready? And that's legal. Now, they're not supposed to coerce and they're not supposed to tell you how to vote. And they're certainly not supposed to mark your ballot for you. But where's the where's the protection if it happens? Yes, because it's, it's just, you know, the polling place is everybody's home, potentially. Um, yes, exactly. So there's no way you can invigilate that process. I mean, it's, right. it's just a joke. I mean, imagine if we said, I mean, you know, here's a sort of dumb parallel. But imagine if we said in relation to school exams. Um, yeah, all the kids just at, at high school, you know, to take your exams at home right. and then hand them in. And, it's, you know, that's it's exactly, it. It's exactly <laughs> We're not checking same. anything. Right. <laughs> it's exactly. We're not checking anything. And, you know, ballots are like money in our system because we're voting on taxes. We're voting on people yeah. who are going to spend billions or hundreds of billions of dollars. This is a big deal. And you've got these things floating around like monopoly money, but it's real money. 
And so it's very concerning. And then you have various concerns related to the machines on which we're voting, which is a okay. whole separate, a whole separate. Well, let's get into that. Tell us about that. Well, there was a trial in Georgia where people were saying that the the ballot marking devices could be hacked. And in the courtroom, a, an expert took a pen, an ordinary ballpoint pen from one of the lawyers sitting at a table and said, I will show you. Right in front of the judge, went up to this ballot marking device, pressed a reset button and changed the results of the election on a ballot marking device, changed three different aspects of, one was a, they were all like test races. I think they had Benedict Arnold running against George Washington, changed the outcome of the election with a thumb drive and then printed ballots, printed extra ballots with some little, some little rig that plugged into a, a USB port and a printer. And there were all these vulnerabilities, and it was very easy. And I went back and looked to when Los Angeles started with its ballot marking devices. This is called the Voting Systems for All People, I think. And it was custom made for the, uh, to the, to the um, registrar's instructions, Dean Logan. It's a custom made system for Los Angeles County, which has 10 million people and is the largest county in the United States. So it's not insignificant if there's a problem. And when this was certified for use in 2020, then Secretary of State Alex Padilla put some conditions on the certification. And one of them was the county had to put tape over the USB ports of the servers in the back office. Tape. That was a con How, What kind of security is that? And the other thing was make sure that none of the employees share their passwords. So that was our election security. Tape over the USB ports so no one could put in malicious code. And a memo saying, don't share your passwords. It's that so, was our election security. Such a joke. I mean, I, every time I get so infuriated when I talk about this. And this overcomplication of everything, just as everyone knows who's ever run a business or anything else, the more complicated you make something, the more you introduce vulnerabilities and opportunities for mischief. Exactly. And it's just, it's just a joke. Why do we have these machines? I mean... The, the the machines. I mean, I don't. Well, I've every time I haven't voted that many times now. When I since I got my citizenship, but every time I have, I go with the paper, and I put it in the thing because I just that's what I feel. And I see these machines, and I I just I'm very suspicious of them because the machines go wrong the whole time. Well, that's what they said in Georgia. Uh, the judge at one point was trying to get the parties to settle and suggested that perhaps they should not use QR codes. Now, what does that mean? What that means is the actual physical ballot that is tallied is paper. The, the gimmick was, we're going to tell everyone this is secure because this is going to be a paper ballot that's marked by the electronic device and the voter can check it before it goes into the mm -hmm. count. Well, yes, you can check it, but the human readable text that you look at is not what the machine tallies. The machine tallies a QR code, which is ah, printed on the ballot. On the match. So it. that's where the malicious code vulnerability is. You would never be able to know if the QR code said the same thing that you had in the human readable text that you said was fine. You would so never all this, know. In California, it's all, this is all run by counties, right? At the county yes, level. The counties. So they have their own, do they contract with different companies for these different kinds of machines? Yes, they do. And everything has to conform to the Secretary of State's standards. So it's controlled at the state level, but it's also contracted at the county level. Okay. There's something you mentioned when we were talking about voters' choice. This is an LA thing. What is that? What, how does that relate to all this? That is, I believe, a 2014 law, and it's not just in L.A., but L.A. is one of the counties that is, that is doing it. And this is the 
it's a new system where they got rid of local polling places. We used to have very small precincts. Oh, yes. There would be a polling place in somebody's garage or in a school or in a church. And it, would, it was a very small precinct. And there would be a, a physical printout of all the registered voters in the precinct that was posted outside. And only the people who were registered in that precinct could vote at that polling place. And there was a lot of uh, security because you had to go in, you had to sign a book. Mm -hmm. So there was a record. And then you get your ballot, you turn around, you hand your ballot to the election workers. They put it in a locked box. At the end of the day, they pick up that locked box and they transported it sometimes by helicopter to Norwalk in LA County where it was counted. Well, that's all gone. Now we have vote centers. So in a presidential election, Los Angeles County might have a thousand vote centers. And this is a huge geographical area, huge. So you can vote anywhere in the county. I could vote from Agoura Hills to Lancaster, Pomona to Long Beach. I can vote anywhere in Los Angeles County, up in Santa Clarita. People don't know me. That's not my neighborhood. No one's going to be standing in line saying, that's not her. That person who just gave her name is not her. That can't happen because I could be anywhere and I could take a carload of activists with me with the voter rolls and people could impersonate voters. And this goes on for 11 days. Some of these vote centers are open for 11 days. Some are open for four or five days before election day. And they're open on election day. Then all the ballots are scooped up. Now they're not sorted at any point by precinct. So if you want to do a recount, and this happened in the city of Long Beach. There was a tax that passed by 16 votes, one six, and there was a, a there was a, an argument about it. There was a request for a recount. The recount was so incredibly expensive because it was going to cost, if you wanted to see the paper ballots, remember we were all assured that there were paper ballots. If you wanted mm -hmm. to see the paper ballots, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for teams yeah. of county workers to find them because nothing is sorted because people can vote anywhere in the county. And then you pay it's for the really recount important. after All that. these details are so important. It just is, it all has gone to reducing confidence in the accuracy yes. of our elections. Did you see how they voted in Taiwan? They voted on paper with a pen, hand-marked paper ballots. They handed them in, and here's how they were counted. People would read the, the vote on it, hold it up for the public to see and the cameras to see, and then hand it to the people at the table to be tallied. And that's how they, no electronics at all. Hand-marked exactly. paper ballots, hand-tallied. As they do it in England, you know, like that's all my life, you know, and you can go and, and you can, and the, the TV cameras are there, it's, the, it's called The Count, and it's in a local school, it's, as you say, it's precincts, and then they're all brought together, you vote in your local school in a small little place, and then the ballot boxes are taken to The Count, all the cameras are there, the candidates are there, they can walk up and down the tables and make sure everything's being done on the up and up, and people have, there's no, there's zero questions. In, in, uh, in the UK or these other countries about the election system itself. Here we have these massive arguments because yes. they've messed around with the system, made it so complicated. They've, they've got all these machines involved. You know, it's just, it's so frustrating. And I think the other thing we've got to note here, as with so much that's gone wrong, is this is driven by ideology. This is not some, you know, well, let's have an impartial, technocratic, managerialist approach of improving elections. No, this is ideology that's driven this, which is the left ideology now, which is all barriers to voting must be removed. We've got to make it as simple and easy as possible. Um, and any kind of questioning of the system equals vote suppression. 
That's where they've got. To. See, that's that's so disingenuous. They take away all the guarantees of security and then they want to censor people who say, I feel like the voting isn't yes. secure. And that is just devious, really. And you, everyone's in favor of making voting more accessible to everyone yes, exactly. for all kinds of reasons. More days, that's fine. Everything's fine as long as it's real, as long as it's verified. It should be easy, but it should be hard to cheat. And what they've done is they've made it easy to cheat. And then we get these election results and people don't have confidence. And then they want to censor you for saying, I don't have confidence. Yeah, no, no. It's, 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 it's so bad. Let's move on to some of the specific things that we've been talking about, because some of them are coming to a head, some of them not. I wanted to get an update on something that's not actually for the March ballot, but you've been working hard to get on the November ballot, which is the Taxpayer Protection Act. Can you just give us an update on that? Yes. Well, the Taxpayer Protection Act is fully qualified for the November ballot. It is going to be on the November ballot. However, it's called the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act. So guess who doesn't like it? The government. And guess what they're doing? The governor of California and the legislature have filed a lawsuit to have this removed from the November ballot. And this is very sketchy. They are saying it's a revision of the Constitution, which it's not. It's not a revision of the Constitution. It's actually closing loopholes that have been opened in the Constitution and restoring the interpretation of the original Constitution. So it's not a revision of the Constitution. But if that argument fails, they have a backup argument, which is essentially it makes it too hard to raise taxes, which is the point. It's designed to make it harder to raise taxes. Not impossible, but not easier. And the government wants it to be easier to raise your taxes because they're running a huge deficit and they don't want to cut any of their friends out of the contracts that you're paying for. So they want you to pay higher taxes. The governor and the legislature have gone straight to the Supreme Court. I think it's called an original writ. And so they it's California are Supreme Court. California Supreme mm -hmm. Court. And they are asking the California Supreme Court to order the Secretary of State to remove the Taxpayer Protection Act from the November ballot. Briefs have gone in and um, we're awaiting the calendar for oral argument. And a decision is supposedly going to be made by the 27th of June, I believe, because that would be the deadline to get everything printed and right. submitted and all of that. So, so what is their argument? The, to, what's the argument to the Supreme Court? That this is going to make it, well, I'll give you an example. Governor Jerry Brown, former Governor Jerry Brown, uh, mm -hmm. sent in a friend of the court brief, and it says that this will make it too hard to fight climate change. What can you even say to that? What that's he's not arguing, a legal argument. That's a policy argument. Exactly. And, and what he's arguing is that the fees that, that these various government agencies impose on the producers of greenhouse gases would have to go to a legislature to be voted on. They couldn't just be ordered by the bureaucrats. And therefore, it's too hard to impose them because, let's face it, nobody in the legislature who has their name on a ballot wants to vote for higher taxes. And that's the point. That's the accountability part. What the legislature has done is essentially delegate the power to raise your taxes to a bunch of faceless, unelected bureaucrats. And they say, well, we're just, we're just implementing the law that the Assembly and the, and the Senate voted to pass. We're just implementing the law, and it's going to cost you this much more money for gasoline, this much more money for electricity, this much more money for everything that you do. Here are the new rules for hiring people. Here's how much it's going to cost you for uh, all these different things that are on the payroll tax list. And those are all coming from bureaucrats, not from lawmakers. 
the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act says that all of those fees have to be approved by somebody whose name is on a ballot. Right. And if they are, fine. And if they're not, they're not legal. That's interesting. I hadn't. Even, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but I hadn't appreciated that part of it. I know we, we, we've talked previously about how this is clamping down on local governments, um, evading the original intent of Prop 13, which limited exactly. local property taxes. And they're going around that in all sorts of sneaky ways. And so this that, that was, I think, the first thing we talked about. I didn't realize. So this is also clamping down on fees whatever they yes. call them, taxes imposed by bureaucratic, non-elected agencies. Exactly. Interesting. It puts it, it puts it back where it belongs. The taxing authority belongs to the people that you elect and who are accountable to you. And they want to take it off. And these are the people that lecture us about democracy and the Constitution all the time. Exactly. I mean, it's just want, unbelievable. If the judiciary goes along with this, yeah. if they go along with this and they say, yeah, the Constitution doesn't matter because climate change or the Constitution doesn't matter because... We have to have the government authorized to raise your taxes any which way they need to. If they go along with that, that is really the end of representative government in California. But these are these Supreme Court justices in California, do they call justices at the state level? I think they call them um, justices judge. of the, of the state Supreme They are Court. appointed by the governor, right? That's correct, yes. They're appointed <laughs> so, by the governor. I mean, I know we say in relation to the Supreme Court justices, doesn't matter. You know, once they get there, they're, they, they, they're independent. I don't know. I mean, there's very little coverage of the California Supreme Court, so we don't really know. It's very concerning. And, you know, the fact that this lawsuit was brought by the governor and the legislature is concerning because the legislature votes on the budget for the judiciary. Mm -hmm. They control all of the all of the little things that the judiciary needs to operate, yeah. the purse strings are held by the legislature. And, of course, the governor appoints the judges. And, and we've so had Democrat is... governor since 2000 and whatever it was, eight, right? Right. And so this is this is Also, by the way, everyone says, says that in the last, you know, like even the Schwarzenegger um, administration, by the end, they were appointing Democrats to things and so on. Um, it's a really big deal. We need to really follow. So you think – so the deadline's June. When – I mean, did you say oral arguments are just about to happen? Well, the, we're waiting. We don't know if it's if it's soon or it's later. We don't really. The Supreme Court can do whatever it wants to do. I think it can probably rule without oral arguments if it wants to. So, but but that's where it stands right now. All the briefs have been filed, right? And it's awaiting a schedule for oral. It's a really arguments. big deal, really big yes, deal. It We've is. got to make if, sure we stay on it. Yeah. If they take if they take a duly qualified initiative off the ballot before voters have the opportunity to vote on it. I think there will be hell to pay. Yeah, yeah. And we need to be at the heart of that. I mean, this is just as if this is it's really interesting, actually. The, the, it is in a way the it's not the same, but there's a similarity between this and, for example, the efforts to take Trump off the ballot. Very similar. Um, uh, and it's very clear. You, I mean, when this was covered the other day, the other week at the Supreme Court, the, the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices were running a mile from it. They absolutely, even the Democrat one, you know, they just did not want to be in the position of substituting their judgment for, the, for that of the voters. Um, and so we'll see what this, but, you know, it's going to be really interesting how this California Supreme Court sees its role in, in, in relation to something which so obviously should be in the hands of voters. 
This is so fundamental to a free country. It is so fundamental that you have a constitution which restricts the power of the government. Why does it restrict the power of the government? Because freedom is a condition that exists under a government of limited power. Yes. If the government can yes. do anything to anybody at any time, you're not free. That's exactly right. By the way, it's such a fundamental point. I mean, if you compare it to, for example, the, you know, the detailed, you know, approach in other systems, you know, like the French uh, codes and so on. That's all about, you know, saying out, here's what the government can do. It can do this. It can do that. It's like giving power to the government. That's what their systems do and their laws and, and constitution does. Whereas here, it's about limiting government. That's exactly the difference. And it's why we're the greatest country in the world and the most successful. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's why you get prosperity is because people yeah. have freedom and they have property exactly. rights and they can, and they can make long-term plans and know that they won't be arbitrarily withdrawn couple of other things that you you were you were um behind another one at howard jarvis uh where you serve yes. as it's to tell us that was the death repeal the death tax repeal the death tax this is something that was slipped past the voters in 2020 there was a ballot measure proposition 19 that looked like it was about protecting wildfire victims and seniors and it was and it did but it had another provision that repealed the protection for parents transferring property to children it used to be the case for more than 30 years that there was no tax increase when that property was passed over to the kids. And now that protection was repealed in the fine print of this thing that looked like it was about wildfire victims. So we are very committed to try to put it back. And we did try twice so far to do an initiative, all volunteer efforts. We don't have a lot of money for it. So we tried to do everything we could within the resources we could raise. We, we achieved about 560,000 signatures. That's great. But it wasn't enough. enough. I know. It wasn't enough. We, but that's it's a, really a constitutional good work. amendment and it needed 875,000 valid signatures. So the clock ran out on us before we could get there. So if you come back and do it again, do, those, do you have to re-get those 560,000? Okay. You have to start from scratch. You okay. are not legally allowed. Everyone should really know this. When you sign a petition for a ballot measure, that information cannot be used for anything else. No one can scan it, scrape it, put it in a database. Nobody can do anything legally with that information. So unfortunately, we have to start over every time, but it does protect people who are worried sometimes that if they sign one of these petitions, they'll get on a list. You're yeah. not on a list. All right. Last one quickly. Um, there's this, it, it, it's interesting development. This is just LA, but LA is a big part of the state, was it nearly 25% of the electorate is in LA County? Is this LA, Measure HLA, I think you told me about this earlier. Mm -hmm. Measure HLA is an initiative. A group went out and collected signatures for this. And what it does is it takes an old planning document that looked to make bike lanes and bus lanes, and it makes it mandatory, whether you like it or not, whether you can afford it or not. Every time you pave a street in the city of Los Angeles, you have to put in a bike lane, a bus lane, a bollard, a, a curb, a something. You have to do street modifications. Even if you're only repaving an eighth of a mile of a street, you're required to do some kind of modification for mobility like a bus lane. Well, the fire department just found out after this got on the ballot, the fire department found out that why didn't anybody tell us? And now the firefighters have come out of this, you know, this is going to affect response times. Yeah, if you take that. away lanes, if you if you put in bike lanes and bollards, the fire trucks can't get through and they're having to go around in these circuitous routes. And it is it is increasing response times and it's extremely dangerous Very because when the fire trucks are on the way or the ambulances are on the way, it's not leisurely. 
and they can't be they can't be gallivanting around the side streets looking for the ways the ways apps best way to get there. This is very dangerous. And so it, it really needs to be voted down because if the voters look at that and say, yeah, that sounds okay, and they pass it, it's going to be very, very dangerous. So that's HLA. If you vote in the city of Los Angeles, please vote no on HLA. And then I'm just going to wrap it up with this final point as you're thinking about voting. I, I put this out on Twitter, on X this morning. I'll just say it very clearly. Do not vote for any ballot initiative at any level, state county, city, whatever, that increases taxes. Do not vote for any initiative. That, why? We already have the highest taxes in America, and we have this massive deficit. Though we don't need more taxes. What they need before they ask us for more money, they should cut the corrupt spending that gives luxury pensions and healthcare off the chart spending to their donors, the government unions, right? That's the place to start. If we, if we have a deficit and we need money for other things, start by cutting the spending that's totally corrupt, which is handouts to their donors. Let's just start with that before you ask the voters for any more money. Absolutely. And be sure you read it. If it says it can, the money can be used for any general purpose, if you see those words in there, general purpose, it doesn't matter if it says fire, police, and ambulance at the start of the sentence. It can be used for wallpaper. Right. It can be used for <laughs> bathroom remodeling. It can be used for anything. So be sure you read it and vote no if it's for revenue, funding, or taxes, uh, because those are all the same thing. Um, and bonds as well. And bonds too. Bonds are, bonds are debt, and local bonds are on your property tax bill. Those are all those extra charges on your property tax bill for 30 years. So read them very carefully. Yes, we have the highest taxes in the country. We do not need more, we need less. All right, Susan, thank you so much. That was great, see you soon. Thank you, Steve, thanks. So for Candidates Corner this week, we have a very special guest, not a candidate herself who is running for office, but someone, let's put it this way, who is trying to run someone else you know very well out of office. Correct. And that is, and that is Gavin Newsom. Guess what? We have, very excitingly, for everyone in our state who's sick of the way things are being run, a new recall effort just announced this week. And I'm so thrilled to say the person behind it is Anne Hyde Dunsmore, uh, who joins us right now. Anne, congratulations. Well, thank you. Um, I, I feel good about it. It was a big day yesterday. And um, we've got an amazing reaction to it, both uh, from the governor's office as well as all of the people who were there for us before. So um, it's a good way to start. And thank you for yeah, having me today. Of course. Let's get into it. So just for those who haven't heard, um, you and your organization, is it Rescue California? Is that the... Rescue California, and I want to say rescuecalifornia.org, not .com. So Very good. Uh, yes, that's who we are. So you've taken the first step in... Um, another recall um, attempt. And as, as we, we were speaking the other day, let's remember this. You, people say, oh, the recall didn't work. It did work. Okay. You did your part the last time, you and your team, because you got it on the ballot. Yes. Um, so that's the part of it that you are responsible for. So you did succeed before. Yes. Um, and now you're having another go. Yes. And you filed, you took the first step on Monday this week you filed the paperwork. I think it's an intent to recall. Is that correct? The notice of intent to recall. Right. Um, first, we had to serve the governor, which we did uh, bright and early. Our lawyers did in um, at the Capitol. 
Um, and then you go down the hall and you file the 450 signatures. It's required actually 325, but we got a lot of signatures very quietly inside of three days. And um, so we delivered those and the appropriate paperwork. And then we also, part of that process is also publishing um, all of the people, which was really a challenge, uh, who signed the notice of intent. We had to run it in a newspaper. Got it. So that's the first step. Uh-huh. Just so that we, we let's do the process first, since we're in the talk of the process, and then we'll get to the real arguments that you're making. Um, I think you said there's a week now, and yeah, what, and what we're checking next? to see if that's calendar or 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 business days, but uh, we're pretty sure it's calendar. But sometime next week, the governor needs to have responded to us with his 200 words or less um, response, and then we attach that to. Um, the language that that we're using, the, the 200 words, um, and that is the basis of the recall petition, which then ought to have about five to 10 signature spots on it. We submit that back to the Secretary of State for approval for circulation, and then we're off and running. But we are not letting grass grow under our feet, and um, you're going to hear it here first. We've gotten almost a thousand requests for petitions uh, ranging from one to over 500 from each of them. So we are, as soon as we get approval, we'll be getting out the door with that. I I still don't even know what that adds up to. Yeah, but it's it's exciting. The energy is there. That's clear. Um, What about the, so can they delay, let's just talk again about the process. So can they have to, the Secretary of State has to approve the circulation, start the clock on that. Can they delay that or? Or is there a way that they can, you know, mess around with that? Sure. Um, They can email us back. and I mean, they can come back and say, you have to put a comma in here or you can't have that many signatures. There needs to be more of a margin. But we kind of have been through all that. And that's the beauty of what we're doing right now. We've been through all the rough patches before. We were not the initial, we were not the principal petitioners last time. We were a support organization. We've kind of flipped with them. Um, we're the petitioners and they're supporting. So we have a great asset in understanding what all the bumps and wrinkles are. So just if, if everything goes pretty roughly according to plan, yeah. when do you start collecting signatures and what, what's the dead, what are the deadlines? So we have to collect far less this time too. I just want to say last time we had to collect two point, we collected 2.3 uh, in order to have 1.7 and change in valid mm-hmm. signatures. So you always mm-hmm. want to collect 125% so that you don't go to a, a, a vote by a signature by signature validation process with the secretary of state. You go to a random count. Right. Um, and so we're aiming for that, but we have only 1.3 and change million signatures that we have to get that are valid this time because the turnout for the last election for governor was so low and we have to get 12 percent of that and it's a proportion of that great so you need fewer signatures what are the deadlines well um at the outside it'll be in sometime in mid-august probably on august 26th 22nd which will be the day that they nominate their candidate for president at the Democrat National Convention. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's no inside limit. We can if we can get one point five million signatures inside of 60 days, then it's, uh, you know, we submit then and we might even be able to get on the November ballot. So November you know, this there's year, quite a few options. And so that means that it would be 
on the on the on the general election ballot that everyone gets not as special like we had last time well it could if we get them in by august then it will be a special probably sometime in february of um 2025 otherwise is that the earliest it could be the earliest could be is is for the november ballot and the latest it, it would be would be February 2025 on a Got special it. election ballot. Okay, well, so that all depends on the pace at which you get the signatures. Correct. Right. Now, let's get to the substance. Why are you doing this, Anne? You know, it's a long process for a lot of us. You know, we, we, we saw a lot of the bad things that are happening. We knew that they were going to happen if he was reelected. Um, that budget surplus that he campaigned on, everybody knew that that was really a function of COVID relief money, mm-hmm. not that he had managed the budget so successfully. In fact, everything going up to even that was gross mismanagement, the 30 to 40 billion in ADD fraud that was never resolved. It's baked into this budget and doesn't even count towards the 68 to 73 billion. Um, so there were a lot of things that we saw when they started happening and then to compound it by having him even, you know, rumored as a candidate, let alone acting like one and advertising like one and traveling like one for president, that's when we kind of said, no, 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 no. At, at worst, he needs to stay here and, and fix the mess he's created. And, and um, But we're not going to let America uh, go blind on who he really is. That's a big responsibility that we have. So that's then, then it just started happening fast, so fast that we just said, we got to pull the trigger now. So we literally decided to do it a week before we filed the notice of intent. We got a lot done in one week. So is is, the, is one of the central arguments then that effectively we in California now, the biggest state in the union, um, the one we, all of us who live here love so much and consider the best. Yeah. And it's such an important part of, a, of, a, of the, the American story economically and in every other way is yeah. basically we have an absentee governor because he's totally focused on the national stage. Is that one of your main arguments? Uh, Yes. Um, Our main argument um, is that he is spending money on political agenda items at the taxpayer expense, Mm -hmm. i.e. 700. And this is the first thing stated in the petition to recall Mm -hmm. um, that he has um, decided to spend seven you know, $3 billion annually to give free health care to 700,000 illegal immigrants. My guess is that number is going to only grow now that yeah. he's pretty much said, hey, come live here for free. Um, and, you know, that's that was the that's the first thing. And by the way, in the polling, that by far and away is the, the biggest concern that California voters have is is that the giveaways when, you know, somebody needs to say, Governor, we don't have the money. Uh, we don't have the money. You need to recognize that. You need to fix that. You can't deny that. What are you going to do? And the answer is, I'm going to Ohio. I'm going to South Carolina. Oh, yes. I have a meeting at the White House, which is exactly where he was when that information came out. And he still hasn't responded to it. Well, he's clearly taking on a national role. I mean, you see him all the time. I'm mean, just this weekend. He was on all the media in, in Washington, D.C., engaging in the basically you know acting as a biden surrogate okay leading democrats they've always done that on another you see it on the republican side too you can do more than one thing at a time but it, it feels like that's where all his energy and focus is and money he's raising money nationally for all kinds of other candidates that launch actually that that he was in washington on was to launch his national ad campaign 
on this human trafficking esque, you know, version of abortion rights. Right. And um, that's a national ad buy. That's not California. It's nothing to do yeah. with California. A, we it, allow abortions here in California. So, yeah, he's raising money for campaigns in battleground states. He's raising money for Biden. He's a Biden surrogate. He is uh, not a California governor right now. I think that's a very simple, basic point that anyone who, with a passing interest in politics can see. I mean, he's, he's in terms of his focus and his time and his energy. Sure. Um, what about the argument that, you know, what I've, I've heard, I've seen a couple of people, well, what's the point? You know, he's already, this is his final term. Um, why do this now? We have three more budgets, not just two years. Um, we have a budget that's increased by, you know, from 68 to $73 billion in a matter of weeks. And that's before you get to, to the May, what we refer to as May revised numbers, which basically are what we have our income projections. Now, what is our income based on tax returns? And those um, typically are available and analyzed in May and they're thereby referred to as May revised numbers. And that's where you have to come up with yeah. your final budget to balance. Um, we're way behind the ball on that. We're showing record high deficit before you even get to the money that they want back, that the federal government wants back from the COVID relief funds, which was upwards of $300 billion to California. Um, so you know, are we facing a, a half a trillion dollar budget in California by the time we get to June? And are we willing to have three, three, two more runs uh, like that in, uh, as a budget? Are we going to look at a trillion dollars by the mm -hmm, time he's mm -hmm. done? So this is really what made us all sort of jump up and go, well, we got to do something. We're not that important. But on the other hand, if we don't do it, who will? Yeah. It's a really, I mean, and actually, if you just look at the numbers, I mean, yeah. again, because they're so, you know, the media are just so uninterested in proper scrutiny of the one party rule that we have in California. I mean, right. this, the expansion of the government that you've seen just in the, what is it, five or so years that he's been there, it's just massive. And we have fewer people I and mean, we have people leaving <laughs> because of the taxes and all the other reasons, the crime, et cetera, the, the affordability crisis. We know all the reasons why people are leaving the state in massive numbers. And yet the government has just I mean, and on some measures, the number of people has almost doubled, you know, and then with that, you get all the 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 pension obligations years and years into the future that screw up the budget for generations to come. So it's actually really I mean, that's a really deep point that that this constant expansion of the government, it's not just in the years that they are presiding over, it, it builds up obligations for, for, for years ahead. Well, I would I would actually reshift the expansion of government on because uh, he's actually reducing the amount of money to firefighters, for example. And, right. and, you know, it's not government so much. It's government funded yes. projects. He's right. taking money out of homeless projects, but he is masking that in true Newsome fashion by putting out he's spread very thin actually politically he's 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 masterminded this prop one in the name of homeless veterans it's like that would put us in six and a half billion dollars of additional indebtedness we are not we don't have a good credit rating here in california so when we go into debt we are actually paying more money than a yes. lot of states who have triple a ratings so you know he's he's cutting back on essential programs 
so that he can have a national narrative of progress that just isn't true. It's a really important point. And I would say to anyone who hasn't heard it, um, we just had a little handover, Anne, um, with uh, Susan Shelley. Um, and, and I'll just, for our audience, just remind them that we had a deep dive with Susan on yeah. Proposition 1 a few okay. episodes ago. Uh, people should check that out because it goes through in absolute detail. And the, and the simple point is exactly as you just said, actually, it's it's, you know, they're selling it as mental health. This is great for mental health. It actually cuts the amount of money that counties have to spend on mental health services. It's a cut in mental health services. And instead, the money's going to crony developers for so-called affordable housing, which is extortionately expensive housing, actually. I mean, the whole thing is a scam. And he's using veterans. He's putting veterans in front of uh, the truth. And I have a huge problem with that. I mean, he's already spent $15 billion on homeless on the homeless issue yeah. uh, and moved the needle backwards. So what's another six and a half going to do? And, and, and as I said before, and many times actually, even if you take it you know, in its own terms and if you accept what they claim this thing will do, right? They're saying... It'll, you know, it's all the ads that they're putting out there. So as you say, homeless veterans, homeless veterans. I think their prediction, projection is like a thousand or so will be helped. Like if that, we have 170,000 people on the streets in California. I mean, it's just, it's just a, for, for all this money. And it's a bond, which is actually a, worse than a tax increase because of the point you made about interest. Right. Oh. And and we also, I mean, the news came out that we have the highest veteran homeless rate in the country. Yeah. Um, Texas has the same number of veterans that California does. And a fraction, like one tenth of them are homeless oh. as compared to California, where the numbers are huge. It's almost exactly the same as the number of of, of uh, veterans. It's, it's tough. So, so what, what it, can I just ask you about the rules around recall because after the last one again let's emphasize that you successfully you and your team got on the ballot you did that part i mean we can talk about the election that came subsequent to that in terms of the candidates after you as it were won the last recall in getting it on the ballot right. the democrats almost immediately started talking about changing the rules um to stop anything like that happening again what's happened to all of that Okay, well, they were able to change some rules. That's why we had to come up with 500, you know, 325 signatures for, for proponents, whereas before it had to be 10. Um, they do have something in, there, in the legislature right now that uh, would make the succession be not question number two, which is who do you replace the governor with? Um, and they would automatically make it lieutenant governor. They drag their feet on that. So I don't think that those rules will apply to this recall. So I think there will be a question number two. Um, but, you know, we as an organization, now again, I was not the initial proponent and I want to big a big shout out to the people that started this movement in the first place. Um, and, and it took them three months to get me to come on board too. So it's not like I jumped right into the fray either, but they convinced me with their heart and their passion and that is all still there. So, uh, but we're not allowed, um, as a recall committee to endorse a candidate for governor. You have to be a different kind of committee to do that. So we are a single purpose committee or we will become one the minute we get permission to circulate petitions um, and solely to recall Gavin Newsom. Um, but what we are going to do this time and we didn't do last time, um, we are going to give a thumbs down. If people want to run, 
They have to address the issues as they are outlined in this petition to recall Gavin Newsom. They have to participate in the recall um, and they have to inspire people with truth, transparency and knowledge. Um, we have a cross section of people from all walks of life that are putting their heart and soul into this again. And, you know, we were winning until the face of Larry Elder was put on the campaign. And what Larry Elder did not do, even though we put plenty of information in front of him, as we did with all of the candidates, um, here are the things that people care about. If you want to win or, or get their hearts and their attention, please look at this. And I have to unfortunately say that that did not happen. Uh, Larry Elder went with critical race theory and abortion right out of the gate. And wow. that was not even in the top 10. So, no, I mean, I, I mean, I've, I'm very convinced. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about that, that I, I make this argument the whole time. It is not true that it's, that it's a, that this is a deep, deep blue state that can never be a Republican and so on. Actually, if you look at the average vote share for Republican statewide candidates in the last, I had someone just do the numbers for me recently. Okay. In the last few, in the last time since Republicans won statewide office, it's actually 41.8%. Now that's not 50%, but it's way closer than people think. Yeah. It's and way it's, closer than perception. Exactly. And yeah. you've, we've just, you know, and more and more evidence piling up that people want change. Just the other week, 57% saying the state's going in the wrong direction, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you know, it is true that Republicans need to bring people in. And I think that the way you do that is by exactly as you're doing, you focus on positive and practical things that, that aren't divisive, that everyone can agree about. Everyone can see that the fiscal situation is a complete mess. Everyone feels the taxes going through the roof. That's why so many people are leaving. It's, it's not affordable to live here, etc. Yeah. You talk about all that stuff and then you bring people in. That's, that's very clear. And you have to be really relatable on that. People can't think, look, everybody's radar is up on people who are just saying something to get your vote as opposed to being really hooked into to wanting to do something about it. Um, you have to really walk the walk and talk, the, not just talk the talk. You have to show that you know what the solutions could be. Yeah who you might bring in. This problem is so big. Oh, yes. That it's you people. You really have to create a cabinet going. Oh, into my it goodness. Say, you are speaking my language. That is exactly <laughs> right. You oh, know, we never I, even talked about that. <laughs> I know. I know. I really agree with that because this is the thing, because they've had their way for so long. You've had yeah. this one party rule, which does not represent the people of California. As I say, you know, they've, they've got you know, at best 60% of the, of the voters with them, but they've had 100% of the government for so long. And they've become complacent and the bureaucracies just metastasize. You've got all these unaccountable agencies coming out of Sacramento and elsewhere, CARB, you know, the Air Resources Board imposing this nonsense or, you know, vehicle, you know, just really extreme ideological policies that just bear no relation to what people want. And they've had no accountability or scrutiny. And you can't just turn that around with one person. You really can't. You've got to go in and transform this government. I mean, we are the fifth biggest economy in the world. And uh, so, are we still? I would. I was wondering if we've seventh, maybe. Well, no, maybe we are. But here's the thing. You see, this is the thing. They always say that every time I make this argument that they're destroying the <laughs> California dream right. and it's a disaster, whatever. They say, well, I say all the times. Well, it can't be that bad because we're the fifth biggest economy in the world. That's still true on the numbers, but it doesn't represent the reality of life for mo most Californians. That is entirely driven, really, by the tech monopolies. So we have a few very, very large companies 
that actually employ very small numbers of people, but generate huge amounts of income. And that's what's propping up this economy. Yeah. But you look at small businesses, you know, small scale, you know, whether it's manufacturing, you know, r the real businesses that actually build a strong society and economy, they're disappearing. And so it's a false number. That fifth largest economy thing technically is true, but it, but, but underneath the numbers, it's all collapsing. Well, that's the case for everything. If you did a deep dive, you don't even have to do a deep dive. If you look at the summary of the budget um, this year, you, you know, one wonders, okay, where's the 30 to $40 billion from the EDD scandal yeah. during COVID? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you exactly where that is. And it's a classic example of what you're talking about. It's, it's baked into the numbers under that department. And they basically offset it with an increase uh, on small business attacks, an increase on taxes on small businesses. And it's like, no, um, but because they balanced it, it's not part of the debt. So, you know, that's where gimmick is starting exactly. to be an oft used um, phrase in describing this particular budget. It's filled with budget gimmicks, totally, which totally. is just shy of mismanagement and malfeasance in my view. But yeah. There's even, a, <laughs> there's even a gimmick. I mean, I don't think we've talked about in this show. There's so much to talk about. We never have enough time. But we, <laughs> but there's an even, when the budget came out, we did a whole episode on it. There's even a gimmick that Gavin Newsom himself, earlier in his uh, administration, said, this is a terrible gimmick and we're never going to use it again. This is all about delaying. Um, oh, that. Oh, and gosh, and he literally terrible. said, oh, yeah. this is about deferring expenditures just just one month beyond the end of the fiscal year. So it counts towards the next year's budget or something like that. He said, this is terrible and we're never going to do it. Well, guess what? He's just done it. Yeah, he's his own worst enemy. It's, it's like I've told the team this time around, you know, no hair on fire, no shooting at your own uh, team members, no crazy. We don't have to be crazy about this. We just have to be factual, yeah, straightforward, accepting of other people who have different political beliefs, but are all focused on California. And really the reaction to that, everybody's grown so much since then that I think we're going to have a pretty formidable team. I don't think I know these people, the stories, what's happened to Angela Marsden since yes, the last recall. Yes. It's heartbreaking. It's out. She's probably going to have to close her restaurant. Erica Caius, Nancy yes. Pelosi's hairdresser. Yes. She's coming back. She's decided to come back, come hell or high water. She's and great. Because she's great. And she's right in there. We talk all the time. She's an independent. Um, poor Mark Kloss. Polly Kloss is, nobody knows this, Polly Kloss is killer. Um, is up for resentencing in April. Mark is like reliving his oh worst gosh. nightmares. And it's like, Mark, go take care of your daughter. Um, we've got this. Um, and he does not want to risk a thing. Backlash from Newsom, nothing. I'm not even sure he'd appreciate my saying this, but my heart's with you. And everybody's prayers are with you. And we haven't forgotten Polly. And we we hope you succeed. And please, um, whatever we can do, this is the kind of thing we never want to see happen again. And it's it's back. Exactly. So, and there's so much so much like this. And again, the, the the characteristic of all these things we've been talking about, they're not ideological. They're not particularly partisan. They're just like practical things that this state has been completely mismanaged, and and so many people are suffering. And you don't and have to. Be 
no, but wouldn't it be great for once if California could set the example? Look, right. we have 34 percent of our voters now, more than Republican Party, are no party preference. Let's two minutes on that. Most of the Republicans defected in 2020. The vitriol was too much. Mm -hmm. um, now the numbers are most of the people defecting are Biden supporters mm -hmm. or Democrats. So not Biden supporters, but Democrats who just feel like there needs to be something different than yes. what yes. he's been able to, to provide. So and that's being nice. So, you know, you're looking at a, a group of people who very much are intentionally no party preference. And another thing. They don't want to be told who to vote for. They are not party regulars. They are not to be taken for, count, for granted on any issue. This, wouldn't it be nice if we could all come together around something we share, which is the survivability and sustainability, if not a path to, to flourishing again in California. Totally, totally. I, I, I feel that everywhere I go. I mean, I'm on the road a lot now around the state, as people know, and I just hear that everywhere. It's exactly yeah. right. Can I just bring it back to the, to the, to specifically the recall and one aspect of which sure. we've touched on, but I want to just, you know, go into, which is the whole, especially if it's November, the whole presidential right. speculation about Newsom, this idea that is out there now, and he's, you know, clearly positioning himself to say, here I am, I'm available if you need me, um, that they will somehow engineer a situation where Biden steps down before the convention and then the convention is a contest where the delegates are actually wooed and whatever and then they actually have the formal process of choosing someone and let's say I mean this is all speculation of course but let's say then Gavin Newsom emerges and is crowned the nominee at the convention how does this affect that um well, I think this affects that quite a bit because he's clearly plan B. I, I do find it humorous that he thinks we're all this stupid when we see the emails saying, hey, give to these candidates in Ohio. Hey, give to these in Virginia, battleground state, battleground state. Hey, I'm going to South Carolina, <laughs> battleground state. Here's a New Hampshire, battleground state. Here's you know, uh, by the way, Nevada battleground state. And by the yeah. way, Gavin, everybody's leaving here to go there. Maybe you should go there and see what <laughs> makes it so attractive. And, you know, and what, you know, taking on Ron DeSantis, Florida battleground state. And then he comes out on Sunday going, I, it's a hundred percent not true. I'm not interested in president. Haven't talked about being president. Oh, okay. Well then stop participating in all that and stay home and address the issues here. Right now, we have other issues and you seem to find to be important. Maybe they're important in West Virginia. Maybe they're important in Colorado. Maybe they're important in Ohio and Pennsylvania. But our budget isn't important in Ohio and Pennsylvania. They laugh at us. They don't want to become us. They don't want you to do to them what you did here. And you're on a fast track to doing that. So I don't know when he's going to go, oh, gosh, gee, isn't it? You know, I didn't really know they were going to do that and recruit me to be vice president because they're going to get rid of Kamala. And the vice president serves as the, you know, at the at the pleasure of the president. Um, he can announce somebody else. I found it weird that out of nowhere she announced I'm ready to serve. It's like, well, we're not. So <laughs> then 
you know, so then there's that. And it's really a function of, of how long Biden can survive and convince people that he should stay in office. If his polling sinks too much further, they're going to have to go to plan B. And I think they're waiting that out. I would right. if I were them. Yes. Uh, so is it before the convention and they kind of make that decision? It doesn't need to be made at the whim of a lot of people. It can be made by a very few people. Yes. Um, and if it goes to convention, they'll go a few rounds, and but they'll engineer that before we get there. The other thing that's very interesting about this is that you have two teams of Democrats that historically have never agreed with each other. You know, the Obamas really took the crown from the Kennedy family. And then you have the sort of the Clinton side that maybe the, that isn't such a fan. And, and you have Axelrod and Carville at some point calling for Biden to resign. Yep. And that's kind of disappeared. So I've heard that they've resigned themselves to the Biden uh, Harris. Let's clean up the Harris job. Let's get her a two million dollar job somewhere. She has you know, something else going on that would prevent her to stay on the ticket. I don't think she's agreed to it yet. Um, I think Michelle Obama is absolutely not interested in yep. being Barack 2.0. Didn't like it the first year of his presidency. Doesn't like it now. Don't blame her. So I think you are looking at Newsom. I think he can come in as a vice presidential uh, nominee at some point. Um, not nominee, but in that office. Um, and then you're going to see a lot of rules tested. Uh, this hasn't happened since Ford. Nothing dictated that the House Speaker became vice president and then became president. It just happened that way at the at the party. So I think we could, we're looking at that change happening. I don't believe Biden's going to make it through the presidential process either way. I think Newsom will be a much more formidable, not formidable, but challenging candidate for Trump. Uh, and I think that... Um, at the very least, and, and I'm not a Trumper. I want to just say this. I laugh when when they say, oh, it's just a bag of Trumpers. And I've never voted for Trump. I've never met Trump. I don't mind where the ball lands. I hate his backswing on issues. But um, and I also think there's a certain amount of gravitas that the office of president requires. And he is <laughs> doesn't seem to be interested in that very often. So, again, Newsom will win. Newsom will be an option and win if we don't show what he is doing to California and right. will probably do to the country. And that's sorry, I turned into a fire hydrant on stuff. But thanks for the question. No, no, no. Very good. I okay. You laid it all out very clearly. I just want to wrap it up. I, I, by the way, I feel we get, there's going to be more conversations in the in the weeks and months ahead um, I look forward to here, it. here on this show and elsewhere. But I just wanted to just ask you just at the end. To just tell us a little bit about yourself for those in, in the, on this show who haven't met you before, because it's very evident from this conversation that you're a very serious and sophisticated political operator. Just tell us a little bit about about your story and what you've been up to. I mean, we don't have to. I, I know uh, and I know we don't have time to go into it all, but just give our audience a, a sense of it. Okay, well, on the fun side, I got into politics because I lost a bet in a bar. <laughs> and I was managing a restaurant in Washington, D.C. in the late 70s uh, on the Hill. And my late night crew, um, I was the only female manager, so I got all the really prime shifts, as you can well imagine. And my late night crew was a bunch of Senate staffers. And, of course, there were a lot of Teddy Kennedy staffers in there. I grew up on the East Coast. 
everybody knows you don't swim across that little channel like Chappaquiddick after drinking all night long. So um, I was not a big Teddy Kennedy fan. And they said, okay, who's, you know, well, I don't even remember the bet, but the loser had to volunteer 20 hours a month for the presidential campaign of their choice. And my stepfather was a, a PR person in D.C., at Fraser, Reuter, and Finn. And he said, well, the thing that you need to do, because I cared about Asian studies, I was all about the Peace Corps and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And I was a Democrat as far as I knew. So um, I went and visited campaigns on both sides, didn't like the Kennedy campaign, wasn't surprised by that, and ended up volunteering, quitting my job, volunteering for George Bush in 1978. Uh, a lot of people from the DNC working for him that were pro-choice, which I thought, you know, I kind of am with very strong stipulations. Right. Um, and so, you know, that was the beginning. And I started out and volunteer. I, then I moved to the press department and I loved it. Worked with Pete Teeley, worked with a lot of greats, Jim Baker, a lot of the wow. great minds back then and um, was up in the C-suite because I was volunteering full time. So I learned a lot very quickly. Um, actually went into the national volunteer program and then I looked at Jim Baker after at one point I said, can I be sent in the field? So he sent me to Oregon. We lost. Um, I managed the, the family press uh, schedule, uh, came to California after we lost. And the only job I could, you know, I got a job doing political, cons you know, working for a political consulting firm, doing data research and, and writing. And then I moved. The only job I could get was fundraising. So it's been a long time in the business. And. Um, I wound up being a pretty good fundraiser and I started at the top. I started doing presidential. I worked for the kitchen cabinet, um, Holmes Tuttle, um, a fabulous name back in the day and, and fabulous mind and came from the dirt bowl, you know, the dust bowl days from mm -hmm. Oklahoma to California. So, um, and, and, and so I learned a lot and, and I learned a lot from the best and biggest minds in the corporate world, as well as the grassroots world. I've worked for the greats in my nonprofit work. I worked for Muhammad Ali on his wow. dream to have a peacemaking and conflict resolution um, center, which is there today. I, I didn't see it through, but others did. And it's a great uh, place. I've done a lot of work in medical research funding. Um, UCLA, the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center was uh, my idea and the chancellor's worst nightmare because he's a Democrat <laughs> from Boston. So I've done some big boulders up at big hills and, and um, you know, that was a result of the Northridge earthquake and that hospital needed to be rebuilt and it's there today. And I'm proud to have uh, initiated that uh, naming opportunity. We raised $120 uh, million, uh, 1.2 billion actually in 90 days. So amazing. Yeah, I'm getting my M's and my B's confused these days. <laughs> I think if you add it all up, it's like, a lot of B's. That's my sense. Yeah. yeah. So 15 presidential campaigns later, I'm not interested in that. Haven't been in a while. Um, and um, want to help people for the next generation. And part of that is parting company with my own party periodically on, on what I, I think is a, a road to the best options to flourish. And that's where I'm at Amazing. today. First and foremost, I'm a grandma. Um, my daughter has uh, cancer and I care very much about that. Right. I want to go be with my family, but I'm going to, I'm going to run this boulder up this hill. It means well, a lot to me. we, 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 we are, th that, thank you for that. Um, and that's of course that you ended there. That's the most important thing for all of us. So, you know, we're thinking of you on, on that context, but also thank you. And so much for laying all this out. As I said, we'll see you soon, I'm sure, to check in with you on progress. But thank you for doing this. It's amazing. The energy you bring is fantastic. 
and hi Dunsmore thank you so much last thing where can people go to find out more and get involved let's repeat that rescuecalifornia.org not.com rescuecalifornia.org and sign up for petitions and we will get them to you within 24 hours of having the petition approved um please spread the word let's not let grass grow feel free to go there and um leave me a question and i'll answer it amazing thank you so much and see you soon all right let's get off my chest something i've been feeling as i watch all this uh hilarious uh commentary around the absolute fiasco of google's ai this new new thing they're calling gemini is the rebranding of their previous ai efforts <laughs> you know, the, the woke AI from Google, as it were, um, what it tells you, and you know, I, this is a thing, I, I'm not an, the technologist and I don't know the ins and outs of AI very well, but I do live in Silicon Valley and I know these companies pretty well. Um, and so this is just a brilliant example of what's really happened across corporate America generally, um, and actually in the government too, which is this this trend towards the sort of bureaucratization of everything, particularly bureaucratization in this kind of left-wing groupthink. And you see it, it's just infected everything. You see in the corporate statements and, and all the rest of it, and just the language of the left has taken over everything. And specifically in relation to Google and, 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 and the AI, what's actually going on there, and I know this from people who are working inside Google, is that they've they set up this ethics board, which is basically just a bunch of you know bureaucrat corporate bureaucrats who've just been you know put on to every single aspect of the process of developing products. So they're no longer just focused on producing something that is that is of high quality to give to their users. Um, it's no longer just about that. There's all this bureaucracy which layers on all these different things and you've got to take account of this and that. And, and it's just the bureaucratization of modern life, I think is just a really underappreciated aspect of why so many things are going wrong. That that's what's happened in this case, right? It's not that Google on purpose, as it were, set out to create this fiasco. Of course not. It is, it is the, but, but it is the inevitable consequence of how they, just like so many other companies have allowed themselves to become bureaucratized and the bureaucracy feeds on itself. And then they, they appoint more bureaucrats and they in, insist on more processes that give them more power and more rationale for their jobs and on and on. And so it's, the, it's specifically this ethics board that has caused the problems here because they've, they've just in, inserted themselves into what should just be a, in, in a sense, a pure product development process with people who are focused on delivering the best outcome in terms of a product or a service for the for the people who use those products or services. But you see it right across the board. The bureaucratization of modern life is a massive thing that we have to fight and resist at every opportunity. All right, that is our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you follow us, of course, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube wherever you get your podcast, tell everyone about the show. Um, as I've said before, I go, I'm go around on the road around California a lot these days and I speak to lots of audiences and they say things, oh, we miss you, we miss you on Sunday nights. I say, yeah, but do you see me um, or listen to me on the Steve Hilton show? And hardly anyone puts up their hand. And so <laughs> if you do know someone who says, oh, I do miss that Steve Hilton on Fox News, 
um, you can say, well, I'm still a contributor with Fox News. You can see me from time to time, but I can guarantee that you can see me every week here on The Steve Hilton Show, but you have to follow us in order to do that. We'll see you next time.